I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 11, and we'll look at that last paragraph in Mark 11 today. We're on the third day of Passion Week. We've quickly, as is the structure of Mark, moved from that hinge of the purpose of Mark in chapter 10 to these final days of Jesus, the final week of his earthly life, and now it becomes a series of confrontations. That's what we'll be looking at in coming weeks, a series of confrontations with uh, the false, with the, uh, the establishment, with the Sanhedrin, with the chief priests, with the scribes, with the teachers of the law. Jesus goes toe-to-toe with these guys in, in really six confrontations that started with the cleansing of the temple, the renunciation of the temple and its system, and now he's going to renounce the leadership itself of Israel, and it is going to be fireworks and significant conflict as the death of Christ is looming because of the plot of the religious leaders. And so these next few messages are all about Jesus and his haters. Jesus has haters, and they are at the very peak of their animosity towards him. And we start to see that as they confront Jesus for what he just did in his teaching in the temple complex about the centrality of faith, verse 22, about the importance of prayer and really the place of of Jesus in being the one who brings about the forgiveness uh, that we need to stand right with God. All of this after his his scene, Jesus' scene in the temple where he flipped tables and braided a whip and drove out the animals and those selling and buying were, were blocked from entering. And so the natural confrontation that came from that, it was an inexcusable act in the religious leader's minds. That's what we see at the end of chapter 11, setting us up for what is potentially, I think, my favorite of Jesus' parables, one of the most powerful powerful parables about a bloody vineyard, and we'll look at that one next time. So today we're in chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. I'll start by reading it to you. This is Jesus and the haters. His authority is challenged. Verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you will answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority 
I do these things. Thank God for His perfect, inspired, inerrant Word. Who do you think that you are? And how dare you tell me how I should live? Pretty common questions in an age that is against authority. How dare you judge me? How dare you tell me what I should do or how I should think? How dare you even hold onto something so bigoted and hateful as your set of beliefs? How dare you say that out loud? How dare you? Who do you think you are? And why are you putting what you think out there? It's common for anyone that, that holds on to truth to be thought of as authoritarian, as hateful, as cancelable in our culture today. And we understand the, the crisis of authority that's happening all around us as we hold to historic Christian doctrine, and that doctrine has become more and more odious and unacceptable to a culture that values every perspective except a perspective that says that it's the only way. Exclusivity and exclusive claims of Jesus are no longer something that is uh, normal, is acceptable. Jesus' exclusive claims of Acts 4.12 in the preaching of the apostles. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Uh, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First uh, Timothy 2.5, uh, he is the Savior. All these claims of, of exclusivity uh, of Christ are are probably at the forefront, besides a Christian sexual ethic, of what the, the watching world says are unacceptable truth claims, too bigoted, too hateful, too narrow. But we continue to preach. As Christians, there's no other way of salvation. And they continue to say, who do you think you are? See, Jesus was chosen and precious by God. He is the only Savior. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Hebrews 4.15, Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice because he's the only one who lived a perfect human life. He is the only sacrifice for sin, 1 John 2.2. He's the one who got rid of fear by conquering death for us. Hebrews 2.14, As our pastor read from this morning, Philippians 2, he's the only one that God has exalted to the highest place. Jesus is the only true object of faith. And in a world that says, follow your heart, as long as your heart doesn't follow after the exclusive claims of Jesus, you're fine to you do you, or you be you, or do what's the best for you. But once you have this tone of authority, that there's only one God, And the only way to follow God is is through His Son, Jesus Christ. When we celebrate His uniqueness, 
We believe and proclaim that he is the only way to heaven. And if you don't respond to him, you will not find the face of God with acceptance. We're called arrogant and unloving and even evil. A gospel that crushes our pride and brings us low is seen by a watching world as in a message that's unacceptable and unloving and to be condemned. Jesus was in the same predicament. Jesus has demonstrated conclusively from the opening chapters of this gospel that he operates with divine authority. That word, we've looked at it in Mark's gospel, exousia, the Greek word for authority. And I bring it out because it's such an important word, E-X-O-U-S-I-A, transliterated, exousia. Greek, you tell seminary students, Greek is like underwear. It's there for support. You shouldn't show it to people. That's normally true, but... This word is so crucial to our understanding of this passage, and I want you to see what it means because we, have in a, we live in an era that, that just erodes authority, erodes authority. This exousia was so offensive to his opponents, and it was so notable to the crowd. I mean, if you were to walk and, and talk in Jesus' earthly ministry, if you were to follow him around Judea and Galilee, and if you were to go on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus, I wonder what you would find most significant, his miracle-working power, his tender and compassionate love. What is it that you would note, I wonder? The people who actually did walk with Jesus, the people who did spend time with our Lord, what they noted was his authority. It was the unmistakable trait of Jesus that set him apart from everybody else. It was this exousia, this sovereign freedom. He did whatever it was he did with no excuse and no apology and no footnotes and no credentials and no pedigree. And so constantly he was being assailed by those who said, we know this guy. We know his sisters, we know his brothers, his dad the carpenter, his mother Mary. How dare he talk like this? And when he taught, it was with this authority, not bringing in all the evidence that the rabbis and the schools of thought and those who are well-trained in the synagogues would have done with their teaching, not this opinion and that opinion and not good and godly Uh, scholars disagree. Instead, Jesus just put it straight out there. And they said, no one has ever talked to us like this. He spoke with such authority. It was the notable thing about Jesus. And as he's casting out demons, those who are experts in the Bible are saying, Mark 1, 21 through 28, where is he getting this kind of divine authority to exercise in the supernatural realm the way that he does? The defining note of Jesus' ministry to those who followed him in his earthly life was his exousia, his authority, 
his divine prerogative, his sovereign magisterial right. That's what made Jesus so remarkable to them. Yes, they marveled at the miracles, but his authority was what set him apart from every other teacher. One author says it this way, the characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and caused the greatest offense to his opponents was his exousia, his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. And from the start of his ministry, that's been Jesus's prerogative. And he can't be moved from it. And though these other teachers and leaders and religiously significant and powerful people have all kinds of authority that they've given to themselves, they went to the right schools, they can back up all their claims with lots of history and lots of data and lots of other scholars, Jesus just keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, 75 times in the Gospels, Jesus says, I say to you. He spoke with authority. Whether it was his closeness to God, as he called God his Father, whether it was his provocative use of ego, I, me, I am, alluding to his self-existence, borrowing the very language of God in his self-revelation to Moses from Exodus chapter three. It was Jesus' authority that set him apart. And now his authority's challenged because it's come to a boiling point. It's, it's gone too far. Jesus has cleansed the temple not just once but twice and not to clean it or to reform it, We just call it cleansing the temple because that's what our Sunday school teachers taught us to say. But he's abrogated it. He's canceled it. He's said it's, it's obsolete. And with his whip and with his rage, he showed the place to be missing the most essential ingredient, which is God. And so in this little tiny section, this little paragraph, 27 to 33, We learn something about Jesus' authority. And I think it helps us minister in an anti-authoritarian age. It helps us see how we can hold on to bold truth claims, how we we can speak directly and straightly to a hurting world and give them the gospel and express to them the will of God with the same kind of boldness and tenacity that Jesus did that is the most loving thing we can do. And so three observations here. One, Jesus's authority is so wise. I want you to see that in his interaction here. Jesus's authority is so wise. And then second, I want to show you that Jesus's authority is divine, that it's divine. And then thirdly, Jesus's authority has this way of exposing hypocrisy. That's what happens in this little paragraph. Let's jump in. Jesus' authority is wise. Verse 27, he came again to Jerusalem. This is his third time entering the city. He's likely staying uh, with Lazarus and his sisters, who he just resurrected uh, a few weeks prior. 
and now he is moving into Jerusalem during the day, staying outside of the city at night. And so for the third time with his disciples after his first trip, which was the Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, triumphal entry, and then his serving of the temple, he comes the next day, he cleanses the place, he does a little bit of teaching, and then uh, now he returns for the third time. And there is a group of leaders a group who are in charge of the temple, waiting for him. And they're identified for us in verse 27. These are the most significant leaders in Judaism. They're part of something called the Sanhedrin, a ruling council that's partly judicial, partly legislative. Uh, They are the the most important body, religious body and political body in uh, Judaism. And this time, uh, they were sort of a go-between politically between the Roman power, which was actually had the sword and was in charge. And they were kind of a middle man between the people of Israel under Roman occupation and the, the rulership of Rome. And so they had power, not unlimited power. They didn't have any death penalty power, no capital punishment. That's why Jesus' trial unfolds the way it does. But in religious matters, uh, the Herodians, the Romans said, do whatever you want, we don't care. And so they had all the privilege there. There's 71 on the proper Sanhedrin, 71 uh, men. Uh, There was three kinds of men, three categories of men uh, on the council, and it was chief priests and scribes and elders. Chief priests and scribes and elders. That's who's waiting for Jesus to entrap him. Since chapter 3, verse 2 of Mark, they have been plotting to kill him. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. These are the kind of guys that would use a disabled man with a withered hand as a trap for Jesus at church. And now they've put up with him for far too long. These three years of his increasing popularity have gotten under their skin like a splinter or a pebble in their shoe, and they're sick of it. And so the chief priests, that's plural, you know there's only one chief priest appointed every year who offers the Yom Kippur day of sacrifice, but they don't, he doesn't die after he offers it unless he did it the wrong way. So there's a whole bunch of chief priests. It's priests who have functioned as the high priest. That's what chief priests are. They were the highest level of priests. So these guys were, were respected. They'd served in the highest possible duty of priests. They were the very highest class of priests. So that was part of the Sanhedrin, those 71 guys. Uh, a second third of them was the uh, scribes. You, you know about the scribes because they were the experts in the law. They weren't lawyers like today, like, hey, have you been hit by a bus? Hey, did you live at Camp Pendleton between these years? Join this. Hey, has your airbag gone off unnecessarily? How's your transmission in your Chevrolet? I get a letter every day. It's a little jerky. Thanks for asking. It's not those kind of lawyers. It's the kind of lawyers who were experts in Torah. They knew the law of Moses. And they were the ones who were kind of the, the groundbreaking guys who had gathered up so much rabbinic teaching from the centuries. And in about three generations, 150 years or so from this time, uh, they would finish something called the Mishnah. 
a commentary on the Old Testament law that was way, way, way longer than the Old Testament law, filling in all the possible gaps, all the scenarios, how you might please God by obedience to the law, what exactly his law meant, what exactly Sabbath-keeping looked like. You've already seen glimpses of it in their questioning of why do your disciples eat this way and wash their hands this way or not wash their hands this way and why don't they do, do this tax? Why don't they do this tithe? So there's all of this external human stuff and the scribes are the ones that get the credit for that because they know the Old Testament forward and backward. These were the scholars. These were the legal uh, analysis. They understood Torah and especially the human tradition. And then the third group there is the scribes. Similarly, these are the elders. These are the, these are the older, uh, I'm sorry, the elders. The, the, el- the elders are the uh, they're the lay people. These are like the, the lay eldership. Usually these are guys who are part of the upper class in Jerusalem. They were the wealthy business owners. They could fund the whole thing. And so together, that's the three that representatives of them, this isn't the entire Sanhedrin, but this is a, a, a quorum, if you will, of the Sanhedrin here to confront Jesus. And they have a question. And it's honestly a great question because Jesus just upset their operations significantly. He's standing in their temple complex teaching their people. And he didn't go to their schools and he's from Nazareth, which is the same as being from Palmdale. And he didn't go to seminary and he he doesn't have like rabbi credentials and he's a total outsider and he's, He's a manual laborer. He's got calluses on his hands because he's a a stonemason by trade. And and it's just a total who in the world do you think you are? Don't you understand that this is ours, that we're in charge here? And so that's their question. And they're trying to trap Jesus because they're trying to kill Jesus. And they understand that they have credentials. They have authority. They are trained. They are taught. They are educated. They are qualified. They are proven. They're elected. They're respected. And Jesus is none of those things. He's untaught. He's untrained. He's uneducated. He's uncredentialed. He's unproven. He's unqualified in their minds. And so they ask him a question in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things or who gave you the authority to do these things? You can't just come into the temple complex and start teaching everybody and start flipping tables and drive out the animals and drive out the people. Who are you? What gives you the right? They see Jesus as usurping their authority. And if you were to ask them, so what's your authority? They could talk all day long. Who they studied with, who appointed them, why they're on the Sanhedrin, why they're such a big deal, their family pedigree, their heritage, their religious training, the size of the the synagogue and the congregation they're, they're affiliated with. They would have so much to say about authority because they understood that they had given themselves and vested themselves with great authority. But Jesus won't fall for their trap. 
And here's where I think you see Jesus is so wise. Jesus never gives a straight answer to haters. He always gives these questions, these provocative questions, exposing them and trapping them. It's so wise. And Jesus could have just glowed, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. He could have just pulled a Korah and said, I'll tell you what my authority is. And the earth eats the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders. He could have done that. I mean, he had the power, but he refuses to accommodate to their hateful and dishonest criticism. And so Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And if you answer it, I'll tell you what my authority is. The basis of my authority and the revelation of the basis of my authority is dependent on you answering one question. He's so wise here because this is in front of all the people. They're the ones that started the the contest, you know, the rhetorical sort of question thing. They did this to Jesus all the time. And so now he's going to throw a question right back at them. And they've got everybody with them. It's like you're you're doing some on-campus evangelism. And somebody says, I got, a, I, got a, I got a religious, theological question for you. Well, maybe you'd be intimidated. But not if you had the entire faculty of the master seminary with you. You'd be like, hey, dude on campus, bring your question. I got Ricardo right here. I got John MacArthur over here. What's your question? Okay, you guys, did you hear the question? What's the answer? (laughs) I mean, they're ready for any question from Jesus the carpenter. They've got the scribes. They got the elders. They got the the high priests, all of them who've ever served or part of their contingency. I mean, they've got what it takes to answer whatever question carpenter man is going to throw at them. And so with confidence, somehow... Jesus uses his incredible divine wisdom to put them right, right on that trap door. Yeah, stand right there, fellas. And he says to them, I love that Jesus says, his question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And I love that he says, Answer me. Answer me. All these guys, these, this group of guys who have all the badges and certificates and can tell you how they're in charge are so not in charge of this conversation. Jesus is in control of the entire thing. And I think it's a good reminder for us that Jesus is always in control of the entire thing. There's never a time when things are like kind of spinning out of control for Jesus. Not in the the moments before they're plotting his death. Not when he lays his life down on the cross. Jesus is always completely in control because his wisdom in his authority is on display here. And he demands an answer for his question. Let's look at his question. What was the baptism of John? Was it from heaven, that's a Judaistic kind of way of saying, is it, is it of divine origin? Is it from heaven? Or is it from man? Is it merely a human invention? Is it something John came up with? 
So maybe that question sounds like a, I don't know, red herring kind of a question, right? Because what are we talking about here? Jesus, what's your authority? We're talking about the cleansing of the temple. We're talking about faith and prayer and the, the identity of Jesus. And, you know, it's, it's, so it's like, what, why are we talking about baptism now? That's a weird question. It's like, how many toes does a duck have, huh? Go ahead, try to answer it. Seems like kind of an off question. But Jesus' question actually isn't off at all. It's not illogical. It's not a distraction. Jesus is pointing them towards a trap that he has built for them that is airtight. Not just because they, uh, and you'll see in a second, because of their fear of man and their lack of fear of God, are unwilling to answer the question. They, They have an answer to the question. They would easily say John's baptism was from man. He was a lunatic. He lived in the wilderness. The people loved him. We didn't like him. Happy to see him dead. That's how they would have honestly answered the question, but they're too chicken to do that. But Jesus' question is brilliant and wise because John's baptism, remember it's how Mark opened his gospel basically, was the first kind of narrative scene after John is preaching in the wilderness, baptizing people for a baptism of repentance as they confess their sin. I mean, John was a rock star preacher. All these people would come out of the cities into the wilderness to see this guy who wore camel's hair, leather belt, diet of locusts and honey, and he would preach about the need for repentance to prepare for the way of the Messiah, and people would come, they'd confess their sins, they'd be baptized. And then on that day when Jesus came to identify with his people and be baptized by his cousin John, a supernatural phenomenon, a theophany, the voice of God came out of heaven, and he identified Jesus as my beloved son, chapter one, verse 11, in whom I am well pleased. So John's baptism, he was John the baptizer. It's really talking about his whole ministry. And John's baptism, his ministry was about two things. It pointed to Christ. That's why he said in chapter one, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. He's just the forerunner. It's why John would say, I must decrease. He must increase. John was simply a signpost pointing to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. That was the purpose of John's ministry. And so when Jesus says, what's John's baptism about? He's saying, what was John's point? What was John saying? Why all the stuff going on in the wilderness? Why all the baptisms? Why all the preaching? What was John about? The answer clearly was John was about the Messiah. He was about Christ. And everyone hearing this knows that's what John was about. That's the first thing John was about, pointing to Jesus. The second thing John was about was John was an outsider too, wasn't he? Not only was his diet weird and his manner weird and or his lack of manners, weird. I mean, he was a preacher of righteousness. He'd go toe-to-toe with Rome. The Sanhedrin would never do that. It would threaten their political stability. It would threaten their role. 
And so instead, they had their authority. They, well, I went to Gamaliel's school. I went to this school. I, I studied under this, and I have these, these uh, you know, credentials, and, and I'm part of this family. John didn't have any of that. He was a peasant, a commoner. He wasn't part of the, the system. He was a total outsider. And when you went to John, you didn't go to the temple to go see John. You went to the wilderness to go see John. When you went to go see John the Baptist, you had to put on your hiking boots and go see him out there because he wasn't part of the the official religious machinery going on. You didn't bring an offering. You weren't supposed to bring a sacrifice to John. You wouldn't find him in the temple. It wasn't, he wasn't a rabbi. All he was was a preacher of righteousness and repentance pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus asks the perfect question to his haters when he says, so tell me, John's baptism, was it from God or was it from man? Divine or human origin? I'll give you a minute to think about it. That's a trap. Star Wars joke. Thank you for laughing at that. It's a total trap. And I like that Mark explains it to us right in the narrative. Verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves. I don't know if they huddled up, but I can picture them huddling. The huddle wasn't invented until the early 1900s by John Amos Stagg, um, University of Chicago, but that's, that's different. So I think they used to just kind of you know, herd together, and so they herd together. And their line of thinking is this. If we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? It's awesome. But if we say it's from men, that's saying that John wasn't heavenly, that he wasn't a messenger from God, that he wasn't a prophet, that he didn't speak on behalf of God, that he was a a false prophet. The only people that believed that were the Sanhedrin. All the Israelites loved John. They were mourning John still. They hadn't heard a prophet for four centuries. And then John was on the scene and they went to him in droves and he pointed them to Jesus. And so they're totally stuck. Why are they stuck? Verse 32, they were afraid of the people because everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. And so they came up with their answer. These are the smartest guys in Judaism. They worked on it together as a team. They got the whole faculty. They're ready to scratch it out. What is the answer they come up with? We do not know. (laughs) Awesome. We do not know. That's what they came up with. They're not gonna pick either way. And so Jesus says to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Look, Jesus' authority is incredibly wise because Jesus' authority is divine. Jesus has shown that his authority is not that he's simply sent from God. Jesus' authority is proving that the reason he can do these things, namely take over the temple complex, is because the temple is for him. 
And so in chapter two, verse five, when he forgave sins and they said, by what authority? And in chapter two, verse 15, when he accepted sinners and called tax collectors into fellowship, they said, by what authority? In chapter two, verse 28, when he redefined the Sabbath, they said, how could you do this? And when he said, oral tradition is not the thing, I'm gonna take an ax to the root of it in chapter seven, verse 13. And when he says, the temple is canceled, they say, by what authority? The answer is by God's authority because Jesus is God. Because no one was questioning what Jesus did. Everyone saw him cleanse the temple. Everyone saw the man's withered hand restored. They're questioning his right to do it. And he, like John, is an outsider And he, like John, is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and expectations and messianic hope. And Jesus is presumptive to act like deity because he is. And these religious leaders and their temple are no longer at center stage in the drama of redemption. Jesus is with his cross and his coming resurrection. Jesus' answer implies that John is from heaven and if John's from heaven, divinely authorized, then Jesus is divinely authorized and Jesus' authority is divine. That means that Jesus is over the temple and it means that Jesus is over the Sanhedrin. That those 71 men of significance ultimately need to answer to Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to juke them or evade them. He's directly showing them if they had ears to hear and listen that his exousia has been inaugurated by God himself because he is God. The problem isn't that Jesus isn't willing to be clear. He's going to be very, very clear in chapter 13 when he says, I am the Christ in answer to a direct question. But the other thing about Jesus' authority, and I think this is true today as it was then, is it exposes hypocrisy. Do you see what motivated these religious leaders? They were afraid of the people. They should have been afraid of, they should have been afraid of God. They should have been afraid of the one who owned the vineyard. Instead, they've been plotting his murder. Jesus, so shrewd, so genius, so divine. What do you do with the authority of Jesus? Somebody sent me a video this week of a megachurch pastor who looked into the camera. They're good at that, those, those TV guys. He like looked into the camera. And he said, I wanna, I wanna talk to the non-Christians and I wanna apologize. I'm so sorry that we ever put any of our Christian rules on you it wasn't right to do that. Those are, those are rules for the family. 
We shouldn't have told you how to live. We shouldn't have judged you. That's, that's for family. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Deep into the camera, deep into the camera. And I get what he's saying. Like the command that Christians have to not forsake the fellowship of one another. Does that apply to your unbelieving neighbor? You know, it's a household rule, right? When, when Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every city, do you think like Mayor Garcetti should do that? No, that's it's a, it's a church rule. But that's not what this cat was saying. What this cat was saying with his dreamy look into the camera was he was saying, look, God's commandments are only for Christians. That is historically stupid and incredibly dangerous because all these people will finally, in the end, answer to Jesus. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to memorize the qualifications for elders or to understand the rules for participation in the Lord's Supper or to understand what Christian baptism is about. But you are obligated to answer to God for the breath that you take. Because you're a creature and he's the creator and he's holy and his law, his moral law, indicts every single person. Me, Joey Mejia with good hands, three guys that can catch, three guys that can't catch. Whoever you are, you will answer to God. And you are a lawbreaker, a violator of God's perfect standard. That's why the book of Romans in chapter one and chapter two and chapter three, you can find it. It's, it's just at the beginning of the New Testament. You, you could read it for yourself. It reminds you that everyone is condemned under God's righteous judgment. That means that everyone answers to God and you don't need to apologize for, for telling a sinner that they can be forgiven of their sins, that their sins are actually against God against his rightful authority. And here is Jesus over the Sanhedrin, over the temple, over all of Israel, because it's his vineyard. It belongs to him. He created them. And so when we think about Jesus's authority, we remember that Jesus's authority is, is divine and wise, and it exposes hypocrisy and if you care more about what people think of you than their souls, like the Sanhedrin did, they cared more about their power and their position than the prayers of the nation being offered in the temple, the nations. They cared more about themselves and their authority and credentials and they cared about the spiritual destiny of their people. And they'll stand before God in judgment someday because they crucified God's son who was sent to be the sacrifice for their sins that they needed and the very exousia, authority of God. He still is, friend. He still is. Father, thank you for the matchless authority of Jesus, his sovereign magisterial power 
his freedom, his sovereignty to do and say all that he is. I pray that we as Christians would be quick and happy to submit to that authority and that, Father, as those in this room who have yet to trust in Jesus, yet to give their life to him, to follow him by faith, to confess him as Lord, that they would understand that they are rebelling against this rightful authority. God, if a crazy person ran in here and announced something, we probably wouldn't believe him. But if the fire department came in and announced something, we would believe him. So Father, help us to believe the witness of your own son, to know that what he says is God's very word because he is God's very word. In Jesus' name, amen.